Welcome to Alcove. Today, our guest is Mitch Garber. Mitch Garber is first and foremost a businessman and a philanthropist, and as well a Canadian lawyer and former CEO of Optimal Payments, PaySafe, Party Gaming, and Caesar's Acquisition Company. He likes to keep busy. He's the chairman of Invest in Canada. He is an active investor across the planet, a minority owner and executive committee member of the NHL Seattle Kraken. He was the non-executive chairman of Cirque du Soleil from 2015 to 2020. He sits on the board and leads a number of philanthropic activities, both in Canada and in Israel. Last but not least, he was awarded the Order of Canada in 2019, and he's actively present in both the Quebec Anglophone and Francophone business landscape. Welcome to Alcove, Mitch Garber. Mitch, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I, uh, we haven't met yet, but uh, I've been following you and so it's really nice uh, to have you in the alcove. You're in good hands. This is not a hot seat. <laughs> it's okay. Either way, I'm happy to meet you. And uh, no, it's a pleasure to talk to you. You know, fellow Montrealers, let's do it. Yes. Actually, you know what, Mitch? We did meet once very quickly. I was coming out of a restaurant or in, in a restaurant with Johan and you were coming out. Ah, so we yeah. share a friendship with Johan Martin. We, we share. And Mitsu, and Mitsu too. And, and Mitsu, yes, wow. yes. Those are real great Montrealers. Oh, they are. They are, absolutely. And so you keep on referring to, you, keep, you refer to these people as Montrealers. What does it mean to you to be a Montrealer? Yeah, you know, I, I, I wonder whether, you know, people from other cities also, you know, first refer to the city they're from. I think so. Um, like, so, so for me, I'm a Montrealer, first and foremost, uh, identify with, of course, I'm a Canadian and I'm a Quebecer and we can talk about that. But, you know, I, I don't identify with Calgary or Winnipeg or Saskatoon. I'm a Montrealer. I'm born and bred here. My parents were basically born and bred here. My grandparents uh, were born and bred here. So there's generations of Montreal in me and, um, and I'm proud of the city. And I feel that the city is a reflection of me and I'm a reflection of it. So meaning, you know, I carry it with me wherever I go. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an important piece. You love the city. We have an election um, in November. Would you consider jumping in the race? No. So, you know, a lot of people, and it's really quite um, flattering that many people, including several political party leaders have asked me um, if I'd be interested in, in uh, running uh, politically, provincially, municipally, and federally. I've been asked by all three. And it's funny because I don't really like politics very much. I'm interested in politics. I'm more interested in having an impact if I can. And I'm more interested in having an opinion and voicing it and not being tied to a political party or a political ideology or have to toe the line of a political party that I may not really believe in. So I, I found that the platform that I have um, or that's developed over time is more effective as an independent person who wants to make a difference but doesn't want to, you know, be in, in, the, political, um, in the political arena. Anyway, anyhow, do you not find that um, people with money have more, more impact, more influence than politicians, to be honest? I don't know. I don't. I don't, there's certain things about having money that I don't really like. One of them is that um, I don't think 
that the opinion of a person with money should be more meaningful because they have money. People shouldn't think that because you have money, what you're saying is true, what you're saying is right, what you're saying is smarter. Um, but I think that, you know, it depends how you make your money. So I think the fact that I've been uh, in some important businesses has given me access to um, politicians or given me uh, a platform on Twitter, let's say. So it's given me the, or, or being on, on L'Oeil de Dragon or getting on Tout le monde en parle, all of those things have given me a profile where um, my opinion has, has counted, I hope not because I have money, but because each time that I appear in one of these places, hopefully something that I said has resonated uh, with people and that that's what gives me the platform, not the money. Well, you're very outspoken, as you mentioned, and, and you wear your heart on your tweets, actually, and your 32 plus followers know that. And so do you feel it's, it's important because you have this, this platform of 32,000 plus, plus, plus to speak out on certain issues? You speak about violence against women, you speak about mental health, and is there a double, is there a, is this a double-edged sword to have this, this immediate connection, unfiltered connection with so many people? I don't think it's a double-edged sword. Um, I'm fairly careful, you know, I've made some mistakes probably along the way. No, I probably reacted too quickly, probably, um, maybe too sarcastic in some, in some mm -hmm. instances. Um, maybe, not realizing the impact that a tweet of mine could have, that it could end up being discussed on in the National Assembly, uh, that it could be that it could end up being discussed in a in a private meeting with the premier or in in the opposition party, um, or that I could get a call to talk about to talk more in depth about what I meant, um, and so I've started to realize that I should take it I should take it very seriously, and so the things you mentioned are important to me um, and if I can make a difference. So you talked about mental health, very important. Uh, you talked about violence against women. It's it's becoming a major issue in, in our society during COVID. It is a major issue anyway, but COVID has exacerbated it. Um, things that I'm not as close to, but uh, are important to my children, like um, the environment, so that generation has taken the environment way more seriously than my generation has. Uh, and so I'm listening to them. Uh, LGBTQ um, rights, uh, gender equality, things that really matter to my sons. Uh, and those things barely existed when I was when I was growing up. So I'm trying to learn more about them and um, and protect or help protect the rights um, of everybody. And so, yeah, I'm learning at the same time and using Twitter as a, as a gateway. And most of my tweets are in French, if you haven't noticed, because that's where I think I have the most influence. Uh, there's plenty of English uh, tweeters out there in, in North America and in the world. And here in this sort of um, small community, I have the opportunity to be an Anglo tweeting in French, which is odd. Well, not odd, but it's rare. And um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not concerned with how many likes I get or how many retweets I get. I, I want to get the right reaction and get the right people's reaction. I mean, you just mentioned violence against women. Three days after I tweeted about violence against women and a solution that I wanted to be part of, uh, I was on a Zoom call with the head of the Sûreté du Québec and, and public security, uh, the head of uh, des femmes, status of women, and the representative of the CAC. So all of a sudden, I'm on a Zoom call, and they're telling me, Mitch, this is great. 
we want you to be involved. Uh, let's move forward. Let's make it happen. So it's real, like real productive um, results from from having tweeted something and having thought something. So it feels really good to be able to do things like that. You mentioned mental health. Talk to us about why it matters to you and also um, how the fact that we speak about it more makes a difference. So this is another thing that's changed dramatically in uh, sort of, let's say, Gen Z versus Gen X and whatever Gen came before Gen X. Um, so in my generation growing up, I never heard anybody talk about anxiety. I never heard anybody say that they had problems with depression. I had never met anyone that knowingly or acknowledged being bipolar. Um, so all of these things that today we talk about much more openly, and I give a lot of credit to um, Bell Let's Talk. I think it's made one of the biggest changes in, uh, in, in, in Canada in, in the medical field and in mental health, for, definitely. Um, so that's first of all. Second of all, um, you know, my father took his life when he was 46 and I was 23. And uh, that had a huge impact on me and my life. Um, you know, I had a huge impact on my sister and my, and my mom and, um, nobody ever talked about, you know, him being potentially suicidal. Um, and we didn't talk about it much afterwards, but today, um, as I became sort of more, uh, what should I say? You know, I don't want to say influential, but, uh, as my voice became more recognizable, attaching myself to, to mental health and to the Douglas, knowing that if I talk about it, other people might feel more comfortable talking about it. You know, that's, I know I'm jumping around, but that's the reason why I went out and got the AstraZeneca vaccine, because the government asked me, would I, would I consider being one of the first to get the AstraZeneca vaccine and then promote it to other influencers and to show the people that if I took it, it means I did my research and I feel very safe doing it. Well, it's the same with mental health. Um, if I can talk about it openly and talk about you know, the story of my father openly. And if I can talk, if I can go take the AstraZeneca vaccine and incentivize other people to go out and do the same, motivate people to do the same. Um, these are all things that I'm happy to be able to do. And they go beyond money. Uh, they're tangible, uh, positive impacts that I'm hoping to have. And in retrospect, now that you're more, um, I don't want to say sensitive to mental health. I feel like you've always been sensitive to it, but maybe you're more uh, aware of some of the signs. Do you think back sometimes of, of, of moments with your father where he showed signs or he may have, do you have an inkling a little bit more of how he saw things or how he felt at the time? Yeah, I think hindsight is twenty twenty. I think my, my mother probably has a much better handle on it uh, than I do because, you know, you're a kid and, you know, your father is like a hero to you and, uh, not only you're a kid and your father's a hero to you, but you're a kid who knows nothing about mental health whatsoever. Like I said, it was never discussed. So you're not even looking for signs that never mind being able to interpret them. So, you know, I guess I, I can't say that, um, I can't say that, you know, that I, that I, that I would know. I think today though, um, I can't believe how many young people are suffering from anxiety and it's real, you know? Um, yeah. Part of it could be social media, Part of it could be peer pressure. Part of it could be the instant communication of, 
you know, uh, guys and girls or guys and guys and girls and girls, whatever the case may be. Um, I'm starting to become much more. Now I notice things. So let's put it another way. No, not then. But now, yes, I notice uh, things much more now. You you mentioned you mentioned your sons before. Um, what do you tell them? What do you tell uh, Dylan and Ryan about their grandfather? Uh, that he was incredibly entrepreneurial. He dropped out of school in the eighth grade. Uh, he became a millionaire when he was about 21, 22 years old. He lost all his money. Uh, he, he, he made money again, went bankrupt. Um, so, you know, my father was very entrepreneurial. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the swings financially are proof of a manic personality. And maybe that's something that in hindsight I could now talk about, um, but at the time wouldn't have noticed. But I, you know, I tell them that he had an amazing sense of humor, which he did. I hope I inherited part of that. And um, that he had this entrepreneurship about him that was sort of unrivaled. He was the first person to deliver pizza uh, in a car, even before Domino's in 1966. So my father was, you know, very entrepreneurial. And obviously, um, I got some of that from, from him. And um, one, of the, one of the greatest lessons I ever got in my life, my father taught me, and he, he never knew that he taught it to me. Uh, we used to go to a barber shop called Angelo's Place in the Van Horn Shopping Center every other Sunday. And um, a certain Mr. Schaefer, I don't know who he was, but his name was Mr. Schaefer. I know that. He would come in every Sunday with a garbage bag. And the garbage bag would be full of underwear, but underwear, boxed, brand new underwear. And he was selling underwear. And my father would buy the underwear every second Sunday. And, you know, at some point I asked my father, I said, why do you keep buying this underwear? And he said, well, if this man has the dignity to be and the pride to be able to come into a barbershop with a garbage bag full of underwear to sell it. I'm going to make him feel really good about that. And he needs the money more than we do. And I'm going to buy the underwear even though I don't need it. And that has been with me my entire life. Uh, when I didn't have money, I would give money to people on the street who were asking for money. And today, um, you know, I give away a lot of money and I can give away more and I will give away more. And I just feel like I have this moral obligation uh, to share my good fortune with th those who are less fortunate. And that first lesson of philanthropy was buying underwear in a barber shop. That's my first lesson in, in charity. I will never forget that story. Ever. I'll never forget it. Um, what do you get from mom? I know and now I know what yeah. you get from what do you get from mom? My mother um, really valued education and my mother valued keeping the family together and focused on school while my father was putting the family through the roller coaster. Um, so you know my mother was really the rock uh, of the family. And um, like I said, school was really important to her and I wasn't good in school. So my mother and I clashed a lot when I was young, mostly, you know, over school and my lack of effort in school and my poor results in school. Um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, my messy room is something that most young people of my generation can identify with. Um, you know, we didn't have a housekeeper coming into the house to clean like I do now. So, you know, that's a minor thing. But my mother was really focused on education and family. Um, she came from a great family. My, uh, my late grandfather and grandmother on my mother's side were tremendous people. My grandfather, um, my grandfather was a doctor who went to medical school in the early 1930s when McGill had a quota on Jews in medical school of 10%, and my grandfather wasn't in the 10%. So he went to University of Montreal where they didn't have a quota. Uh, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people would think that the opposite was true, but it was, it was not true. And so my grandfather learned French in medical school and ended up when he got out, there was very hard for Jewish doctors to even find a job in like 1938, 39. And um, he was, he was offered to go to the Eastern townships and be one of the first doctors in the entire Eastern townships where he delivered babies, fixed broken arms, did stitches. He had an x-ray machine in his house. Um, and so my mother, who was born in Montreal, was raised in Waterloo, Quebec, in the Eastern Townships. And so was my uncle, who's also a doctor. So that side of the family was focused on education and family. And so that's, you know, what I largely got from uh, from my mother was the sense of education and uh, and family. You mentioned philanthropy. And, and I, I don't know that there's a time in history where philanthropy has been... Um, as openly discusses now, because I think it's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, you've challenged a little bit some of your peers because you give a lot of your money. And, and I feel that I feel like you're on a crusade to re-educate the elites when it comes to uh, giving money. If you were to, to, to have two, three big lessons about philanthropy, talk to me like talk to me like I'm a billionaire who yeah. doesn't give who doesn't give enough money away. Yeah. So you don't need to be a billionaire. Um, basically, I will talk to you as if you're a billionaire, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this first. Number one is that I try to inspire people to understand the principle of giving and then to understand the principle of giving to their capacity. So capacity is from a dollar to a billion dollars. It's your capacity. And the way I try to get people to understand their capacity is to try to let them see what the level of giving would be before they would feel any pain, before they would even have to change their lifestyle at all. So it's not like I'm saying to you, Martin, you should give uh, to a level that you'll have to move out of your apartment or your house because it's too expensive for you, but you you could still be happy in a lesser home. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, Martine, what's your level of capacity where your lifestyle won't change, but you'll change the lives of others? So whether you're a factory worker, uh, or you're on the floor of Pratt and Whitney, where I've given many speeches to the uh, to the workers on the on the floor at Pratt and Whitney, where they give five dollars off of their paycheck or fifty dollars off their paycheck to Sontrade, and they find their capacity uh, to give and not have to sacrifice their their lifestyle or their family's clothing, food, and, and education. So that's number one. When I speak to very wealthy people, I try to talk to them about their uh, giving matching their living. So if you're living big, you could be giving big. Um, if you're living big and giving small, then your giving is not matching your living. You're not reaching your um, your generous potential. And I tell people, I think by being honest, that I haven't reached my capacity, my point of pain, uh, my max, my giving until the limit where I don't have to change my lifestyle. So I'm learning also and figuring out uh, how to continue to uh, to give more. So if I could let you know non-millionaires understand capacity and millionaires understand, uh, understand their capacity, but at the same time, not only their capacity, in the case of people without money, um, they can give time. In the case of people with money, Time's not enough. They have to give money. Um, and so, you know, I try to, I have so many different 
sort of methods of talking about philanthropy. One of them is I could turn to somebody who I know is very wealthy and ask them, do you think you would notice if $100,000 was missing from your bank accounts tomorrow? Now, I know the answer is always no, I wouldn't notice. And I say, imagine you wouldn't notice $100,000 missing. And do you know how many people we could feed with that $100,000? And just imagine how good it would feel. And you wouldn't even notice. But you would notice if you fed people. That you would notice. Because you'd get gratitude for it. And you'd feel good about it. So it's a lot of different... Um, it's a lot of different truths that I'm speaking and none of them are like, none of them are hyper intelligent. Not like I thought of something new. I didn't think of anything new. I just try to talk to people uh, the way I think they'll um, relate to me. And do you do, have your friends stop inviting you over Mitch? No, because I, <laughs> these are uncomfortable. No, 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 no. People still invite me over, but no, because um, I rarely ask for money. Now, even though I may, you know, in, in the Sontrade campaign or in the Combined Jewish Appeal CJA campaign, of course, my goal is to get, raise money. What I do differently than has been done in the past is that I um, I call on people. So I'll say, listen, Martine, I'm raising money for Sontrade or I'm raising money for CJA. Um, we're looking to raise $40 million for COVID relief. This is why we need it. This is who needs it. Um, I'm not looking into your bank account, Martine. I don't know your lifestyle. I don't know a lot about you know, uh, who else you support in your life. I don't know what other charities you may or may not give to, but I'm reaching out to you because I think it's important. And I think that you need to consider uh, helping in the case of Montrealers, I would say no one will help Montrealers other than other Montrealers. So I can't go to Boston and raise money for Sontrade. In the case of the Jewish community, I'll say, well, no one will help the Jewish community other than other Jews in the Jewish community. So I'm reaching out to you as a Jewish person. Um, and uh, the same in the Haitian community, the Italian, the Greek um, yeah, I just want to inspire people to be to be givers. Then we can worry about where they give their money. I'm not going to be a judge as to whether the SPCA is more or less important than Sontre or, or cancer research. You know? Yeah. No, I was asking. I was making the joke about about uh, if people had stopped inviting you over, not because you asked for money, but rather because you question. You, you put, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have. It's an uncomfortable. It's it's an you know somebody who's never given or doesn't give enough. Uh, I don't think loves being uh, reminded that they don't or th that they should do more. And it, it's a little bit like your crusade uh, uh, about fiscal responsibility, which I, I think is fantastic. What type of feedback do you get from your peers when you say, hey, I think we should pay more taxes? Yeah, well, I don't think we should pay more taxes, but I'll, I'll, I'll be more specific. Yeah. But so on the philanthropy side, um, people enjoy having the dialogue with me. It's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. Actually, it's a trialogue because my wife is very much involved with me in, in, in those discussions. Um, on taxes, the feedback has been fairly negative um, because I think I'm misunderstood and I only have myself to blame because I'm, I know I'm articulate and I know I'm clear in the way that I speak. So um, I can't claim that that I misspoke. I could just claim that people hear what they want to hear. So they hear the word tax and they freak. So I want to, you know, I, I have a chance with you to do something that can be replayed over and over again. I think a during COVID that those who are more fortunate can afford to help those who have been really badly impacted during COVID. So COVID is a once in a hundred year problem. And I think it's going to last for a couple of years in terms of the negative impact that it's going to have on people. And so I want to be part of a solution. And that solution requires money. 
the government is printing money, the government is writing checks, and people like me can afford to do more during COVID, whether that's by giving more to charity, which I'm doing, except for those who won't give to charity, but have been fortunate and have a lot of money, it might require the government to uh, not ask them, but to impose some type of COVID relief stipend or COVID relief special contribution. I don't want to call it a tax because it's the only word people hear. Yes, we're taxed enough. I have, I have no doubt that we're taxed enough. Yes, I'd rather give my money to Sontrade and know exactly where it's going than give it to the government and not know where it's going. You know, I'm not stupid. Um, putting money in the government's general account is not the most efficient way to contribute to people who need it. So my first priority is to get people to be more philanthropic. My second priority would be that in the event that people are not being philanthropic, maybe the government should find a way. And I think that the Trudeau government has found a few ways. Um, I think some of it's symbolic because when I look at the amounts that are going to be collected from uh, some of the taxes that are being imposed by the, by the federal government, it's not huge, but at least it sends a message. Uh, yachts and expensive cars. Okay, I'm prepared. That's fine. Um, homes that are owned by foreign owners but are vacant. I'm good with that. That sounds like a pretty good idea. Um, so, you know, th th these are in some cases symbolic uh, but gestures, but I agree that if you can buy a car for $180,000, you can probably, you know, pay some, you know, extra number of percentage points for the car. Um, a lot of people will say they don't agree. They'll say, well, I've, th those are after tax dollars that I'm using to buy that car. And I worked hard to get that car and I created employment and I stimulated the economy. And those things are all true. Yeah. And then I go back to, well, do you think that you will notice if there's another $12,000 missing from your bank account and you're still driving that $180,000 car? And I don't have to be right. I just, you know, I, I communicate my opinion and uh, I'm not always right. And people don't always agree and they don't always follow. It's okay. I mean, um, I'm just one person and, and I, I, I say what I think and, and hopefully some people will follow. We were talking about tweets before. I'm going to read you one. Okay. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd's murder called to attention the very deep roots of systemic racism and the need for meaningful change. George Floyd's life mattered, and today's verdict took a necessary step in reaffirming this, but also in setting the precedent that no one is above accountability. We feel for so many in our community, and we know the fight for equality is far from over, and we know how much work is needed to be done. The Seattle Kraken and Climate Pledge Arena will continue to use our platform to advocate for change and take measurable steps towards creating for a more just and equal society for all. This is from the Seattle Kraken. You sit, you, you sit on its board. What, do you, what comes to mind when you read this? And, and what do you think about sports teams and, and companies' brands uh, reacting to an emergent verdict? What does that yeah. say about where we are? And So I'm really proud of the Kraken. I'm proud to be a part owner of the team. I think it's important. Um, I want people to know that I've never met you other than maybe outside a restaurant and we haven't spoken before, before this. So I'm happy that you read that. Um, we're a team that's going to have a social conscience. And when you have a social conscience, it doesn't mean that everyone agrees with you. The team may have very right-wing fans, some that will say, why are you 
doing this, or we may have fans that don't think that uh, Coven should have been convicted. But we're not going to change the way we are as an organization or the way we communicate and feel as an organization, um, even if we lose a ticket holder along the way. So we care about the environment. We care about LGBT rights. We care about gender equality. We care about diversity in our hiring. Um, and, and we care about the community at large, not just the Seattle community. I mean, I'm not a member of the Seattle community. I'm falling for the Seattle community. And I'm certainly going to try to become a, a, a good member of that community. Um, so taking that position on George Floyd is consistent with every other communication that's come out of the Kraken. It's consistent with our other owners. It's consistent um, with the climate pledge. Um, it's all part of the same social responsibility and social justice um, piece that is, you know, a major part of, of, of everyday life today. And, you know, you mentioned systemic racism. So it's interesting. I'm a part of several communities. I'm an outsider in the Seattle community where, of course, there's no issue in discussing systemic racism and the biases that um, people of color and uh, visible minorities have suffered for, for decades, for more than decades, um, prejudice and biases in the healthcare system, prejudices and biases in the employment uh, realm. And then I'm also a member of the Montreal and the Quebec and the Canadian community and in the rest of Canada, there seems to be no issue in discussing systemic racism. And in Quebec, you know, I believe the reason why there is no admission by our government that systemic racism exists is because I think it's been poorly explained. I think it's been explained so that the people of Quebec feel that if they acknowledge that there's systemic racism, it means Quebecers are racist. And it doesn't mean that. It means that over time, um, and we'll use black people as an example, okay? And um, and and of course, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't know your your background, but of course, being black and being in Montreal, um, you'll have an experience that's very different than my experience. And I haven't asked you about your experience, but there seems to be no doubt. And I have, you know, many um, many friends who are black who have too many similar stories for it to be a bunch of random um, events that aren't at all to do with their skin color. It just can't be um, that I've never been pulled over. I drive a Ferrari, I used to drive a Porsche, I drive late at night, I drive with the top down, with the top up. I've never been pulled over. I walk down the street, I walk through alleys, I walk at 3.30 in the morning. I'm sure that when I was younger, I stumbled out of a few clubs on Crescent Street in St. Lawrence and I've never been, I've never been pulled over. And you know, all of my black friends have like a multitude of stories um, you know, that I don't have. And so when we talk about, and that doesn't mean Quebecers are racist, okay? It means that there are biases in our society that are undeniable, um, that you know, in interviews for jobs that um, that there has been some white privilege that I've benefited from. I didn't ask for it. I didn't enforce it. I didn't try to have it, but I was born a white male in Canada. Um, and that's a very privileged position. And that cannot continue to be true unless it's also a privileged position to be any other Canadian. And that's why, you know, when you speak to um, and maybe it's a language uh, 
issue because, you know, of course, we could talk about Black Lives Matter. And, you know, you may speak to people in Quebec who don't understand why saying all lives matter is wrong because all lives do matter. But in the Black Lives Matter movement, we won't say all lives matter until all lives matter equally. And today, all lives don't feel like they matter equally. So we're going to focus on those lives that are valued less. And when we get those lives that are valued less to be valued equally, then we will be able to say all lives matter. And it's not easy to explain that. And I'm happy to have this platform talking to you, okay, a white Montrealer and a black Montrealer having this discussion because I think it's really important to have. In all fairness, uh, systemic racism has been explained clearly enough. We choose to not want to understand it. It is not a language barrier. barrier, barrier. Other Francophone countries understand it. Um, and it's funny because you you mentioned uh, with the Kraken, and I absolutely love that. You said, if we lose a, a ticket sale, we lose a ticket sale. Because that's part of of your philosophy, of the, 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 the Kraken's philosophy. Are you not surprised that no leading fleuron du Québec, okay, and I'm talking about either a Saint-Hubert or, or any, uh, name it, has challenged the Quebec government to say, you need to recognize this. The same way that American companies have said to Georgia, Georgia lawmakers, not on our watch. So we're gonna move the we're gonna move the ML, MLB All Star Game. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, Quebec is an it, again, it's an interesting place. Uh, let's look at um, the state of Georgia right now, where after enormous amount of pressure, some companies are speaking out, but they were reluctant to do that. So. You know, it's a complicated um, question because a lot of these companies have, Quebec companies, have thousands of employees who depend on the company and its sales. And the easy way out for the leaders of those companies is to say, we don't get involved in politics. So they don't say that they're for an independent Quebec. They will say they're for their federalists, before they will say that they're for an independent Quebec. So it's been a long history in uh, Quebec where business people are very reluctant to be, uh, to be political. Um, I don't know. I just feel like I'm in a very um, privileged position where I feel like I don't work for anybody. If the federal government doesn't like my position, they can ask me to step down as the chair chairperson of Invest in Canada. Um, you know, if the um, if the rest of the board members of Rackspace, which is like a $10 billion company, or Shutterfly, which is a company based in San, in San Francisco, um, think that I don't reflect the values of the company, they can certainly ask me to, to, to step off the board. Um, I haven't had a single person come to me and, and, and reprimand me or speak to me in a, in a way that made me feel that they didn't appreciate that I took the positions that I took and that I, uh, I wasn't afraid of what it might, uh, of what it might, of what it might cost. Um, 
I think it hasn't cost anything. I think if anything, um, you know, it's a net benefit. Don't forget, I also have two children. I want them to um, to have some pride in 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 the values that my wife and I are are teaching them. You know, when I watched when I watched the U.S. political situation, the thing that affected me the most it wasn't Trump. It wasn't even the racist radical right. It wasn't Fox. It was the super educated senators that will absolutely sacrifice every ounce of integrity to keep power and to keep their position. I couldn't believe it. And it's the thing that I tell my kids, I don't care if you have how much money you have in stock options if the CEO of your company that you're working for you know, is uh, racist or asks you to do or say or stand behind things that are against your fundamental values. I'd, I'd, and not because you have a wealthy father. I'd rather you quit and be unemployed than have to swallow all of your pride and all of your integrity. And what I watched for four years was educated men, Harvard educated, Yale educated, Penn educated, educated men and women um, prepared to go along with basically anything out of fear of losing their power or having mean tweets written about them. So I don't care about any of that stuff. And I, and I don't want my kids to care about it either. Mm. But, you know, I, I, I will say this, though, about, uh, about you know, Quebec companies not calling out that CAC. I think some of that is on us as well as consumers because we care we should care more where we spend our money. And we see it when when Nike takes a stand and when Nike took a stand with Kaepernick, it lost, you know, 2% of its stock value the first day. But then the next day, it, it, it blew up. Why? Because consumers said, you know what, I'm proud of Nike. And I find that you know, I, uh, I I like Saint Hubert, and you know, I, I'm not I'm not trying to to. It's because Saint Hubert is such a representation of what Quebec does does great, right? And it's such pride. I wish uh, the the Saint Hubert uh, people would say, you know what, uh, Monsieur Legault, you need to you you need to recognize this problem. And I and so it, it could be other companies, but I think some of that is on us as well. It's not. It, it can't only be the CEO. And although now I realize Saint Hubert is not even Quebec owned anymore, but yeah, but it's it, it's a Canadian company with a big right. Quebec presence. But you know, uh, Martin, um, whenever this uh, podcast gets broadcast. Today was a day that the front page of the Journal de Montréal had a picture of Justin Trudeau dressed in Indian clothing during his trip to India, and it said the Indian variant has arrived. It is among the most, well, it's probably the most racist front page. It could be in the history of Canada. I mean, I don't know. I haven't done the research and it's today, but it could be in the history of Canada. And, you know, I have a really good friendship with um, Francois Legault. I have a good friendship with Philippe Cuillard. I have a very good friendship with Dominique Anglade. Um, I have a Twitter friendship with Pascal Berube. I wish all of these people, okay, I'm sure Dominique will, but I wish all of these people would be apolitical today, and I'm pretty sure they won't have been, at least we'll have the benefit of hindsight, and say this is terribly racist. They'll dance around the word racist, but it's just clearly racist. To look at you know, a picture of Justin Trudeau on the front page of the Journal de Montréal, you know, and say this, the Indian variant has arrived. I just can't think of anything. Well, I could think of worse things, but not much worse. So, um, so there's a reluctance to say the word racism 
Um, there's a reluctance to talk about the systemic nature of it. And to be perfectly honest with you, Martine, I think that uh, you might disagree with me, which is perfectly fine. I, I think that you and I should probably stop trying and focus on all the right messages, because if we keep on hammering to get the government and the population to agree that it's systemic, we won't get there. But what's the difference? If they don't say the word, it's fine. Let's just get there to be much less racism. Um, you know, yeah. let's make it so that, you know, uh, Dwight Walton, my high school friend, okay, who's a six foot eight black basketball player, we're exactly the same age, gets stopped on the street as often or as seldom as I do, right? And let's just get to that point or, or, that, or, or, or I'll go one step further. You know, do people cross to the other side of the street when I'm walking with two buddies the same way that they do when the black equivalent of me is walking with two buddies? I've seen it happen. I've probably done it. Probably done it when I was 14, 15 years old. You know, you think people want to admit and acknowledge that there's like these biases that are in your head that you don't even know how they got there. You know, maybe it's from watching television. I don't know. So I see it. I see it clearly. You know, my friend, Nicole Jones, my, my friend, Nicole Jones, who you probably know, she's a beautiful Montreal black woman. And she's told me about situations where a taxi will pass her and she's waiting for the taxi and pick up a white person after her. Now, it could only be that one taxi driver, but there's just too many stories and it doesn't make all of Quebecers or all of Quebec or all taxi drivers racist. It's just an indication that there are biases that are so long implanted that this Black Lives Matter movement is only trying to help move it out of the consciousness. For sure. You know, I'm talking to you. I mean, you should be talking to me because you've lived the black experience. I'm just telling you what I see as the black no, but, experience. But I no, but I like to hear it because it, perspective is 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 uh is key for in, in on issues like that. But two things. A, we share a friendship with Dominique as well. Uh, and she did comment. Uh, she did not really dance around the issue. Legault did. Uh, he refused to to call out Journal de Montréal by name. And once um, social activities reprise, we, you and I will go for drinks and I will explain to you why it's primordial that the government recognize names uh, systemic racism. It's all good. Oh, no, I do. I do. I just think they won't. So no, they won't. Oh, agreed. Agreed. 100%. Agreed. 100%. Um, we, we've spoken about your sons, uh, Dylan and Ryan, a couple of times. I am in admiration of, of, of their generation. Um, tell me what you see clear more clearly now because of your sons. Uh, and tell me what you know, some of the, the things they've made you understand better? Um, I think that we're living a, a much different pressure. What my wife and I lived at 21 and 25 and what they're living at 21 and 25, totally different. Um, and so it took me a while and it was not easy for me. Um, and I wish I would have done a better job, but it took me a while to take their stress and their anxiety seriously because I grew up, no money. My, you know, my father was up and down, bankrupt, not bankrupt. 
I delivered the newspaper at 11 years old. I worked in a snack bar when I was 14. My mother had to sign for me. I worked at Sports Expert sharpening skates and 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 uh, stringing tennis rackets. I worked cleaning the tennis courts. I picked up garbage. So I did all these things, right? Totally different generation, totally different reality. Um, I didn't feel stressed about my career or what I was going to really do. Um, and so when my kids who have grown up for the most for most of their lives, very privileged, I was not sensitive enough to that their stress and anxiety is real. Um, and not to be able to just look at them and say, well, how could you be stressed? Look what you have, you have everything, which I did do, which I did say, which I was wrong to, to do and, and wrong to say. So what I've learned from them is that everyone's, you know, reality is different. And, you know, it's not because you have money that all your problems uh, go away. And so people look at me and they go, what's he worried about? Well, I'm worried about all the same things you're worried about. I want my kids to be happy and healthy and, um, and, and I want them to feel pride and dignity. Um, what am I worried about? You know, I'm, I, you know, I also don't want to get cancer. I, I, it's not like, <laughs> not like I'm a different type of human being. So, um, I've learned a, a bit of, well, it's a bit of humility because, you know, I, I, I needed to understand them better. And, you know, I just look at, I look at their lives where they have this sort of instant gratification and I didn't have instant gratification. I never got instant gratification from anything. Um, but, it, but that's the new reality. But the instant gratification doesn't mean that these kids aren't anxious and stressed and that answering in real time, every single snap and every single text and every single Instagram message and, the pressure of the girls who are texting and the group chat and missing part of the group chat. So you have two choices. You either say that's so stupid or you say it's not stupid at all. It's just different. And you know, there are things about it that I really don't like um, and that I think are really unhealthy and that I think are causing uh, not only the greater awareness to mental health, but great more mental health problems than we had when we were young. Um, so that's kind of the thing, if I had to think of one thing um, that I've learned the most, I think also for my kids to have uh, two parents who are like super A-type achievers probably wasn't the easiest thing in the world for them um, or isn't the easiest thing in the world for them. So, yeah, those are those are two of the elements I think that I've that I've learned, you know, from them. They're both really, really good people. Uh, they both. You know, they both, hopefully, I believe they appreciate the position that they're in. I believe that they will both use it to be generous. Uh, and I think that they'll both lead in their own ways from a social justice point of view with no pressure from me or Anne-Marie, but that they will, that they'll do something good with the good fortune that, uh, that they have. And uh, hopefully they'll just be able to choose careers that they love and do things that they really enjoy doing and be productive. So you, you, you touched on things that worry you, like worry all of us, not get sick, uh, that our kids are happy. What gives you hope? Um, I think that my, I, it's not a philosophy. I'm very, I'm very lucky. I have a, a DNA Um, and I know that 
it, sometimes this DNA that I'm about to, 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 to describe is hard for my wife and my two sons to live with, but I jump out of bed at six in the morning and I'm in a good mood 99% of the time. I've, I have a glass full mentality. Um, you know, until the glass is shattered and the water is splashed all over the place, for me, the glass is full. Um, and even if it's shattered, I'll find a way to put it back together. Um, what gives me hope is that I think that people are fundamentally good. And even though I spent four years of the Trump administration watching way too much television and being way too aggravated, um, I really think that people, people are, fun, there are, there are fundamentally terrible people, but people are fundamentally, uh, are fundamentally good. And um, why would I waste my time tweeting about philanthropy, tweeting about Black Lives Matter, tweeting about uh, conjugal violence? I can just go sit on a yacht somewhere and not worry about it because I believe that people are fundamentally good and they fundamentally want the world to be a better place and they fundamentally want to be generous and they fundamentally want to give. And I believe that if you walk into, if I walked into a house in Iran today and knocked on the door and needed help, that the people are just regular people that want to help and they want their kids to grow up and have better lives than, than, than they do. So I, I think the belief that people are fundamentally good, even if leaders of countries are sometimes not good, um, and even if society is probably in one of its worst cycles in my lifetime, I believe people are fundamentally good and that, and that you need to just keep moving in the positive direction and don't let the negative drag you down and just give up. So that's sort of my, um, my hope. I have to tell you, Mitch Garber, in this moment, I feel a kinship with you. I feel we have, I, I, I do, because I, I, I feel the same way. I think people are fundamentally good. Um, music producer Rick, Rick Rubin said once that, you know, they don't teach you how to deal with success. Is that true? Um, not really true. I think um, the people that are around you, even if they're not trying to, they are the ones that will instruct you about being successful. If you're around obnoxious, self-righteous, successful people, um, you'll either learn how not to be or you'll become like them. Um, I've been extremely lucky. Um, I was a lawyer with my godfather, Cookie Lazarus. I married Anne-Marie, who's been a part of every decision that we've made professionally and privately. Uh, I've been partners with uh, David Bonderman and Jim Coulter, the founders of TPG, with Mark Rowan, the founder of Apollo. These are all multi-billionaires who, um, it's not their, not their secretary who answers the phone. Uh, you know, it's them. Uh, they, they're just regular good people that have shown me uh, how to be a regular good person, even though you have money, or, um, you know, how to not, how, how to not be obnoxious you know about it so yeah having you know being with the right in my case wife um and having the right business role models that has instructed me on how to act successful and and be successful so you know i think you i think you you can learn it from the right people 
if you were writing currently writing the manuscript to your the manuscript of your autobiography um what would be the author's description of the author um I'd say a highly motivated person who's had an incredible string of good luck. That is, that is who I am. I'm an incredibly motivated person who's had an amazing string of good luck. I'm telling you, this kinship is like stronger and stronger. Right now. <laughs> I, love I love it. And and in the manuscript that you're working on, you would be working on right now, who do you thank at the end of the book? Yeah. Um, first of all, I would thank a lot of people, you know, I'd have to thank my, uh, my mother, my father, my sister, I'd have to thank my wife because she's like the rock of every decision that's been made since I graduated, uh, law school. And then, you know, I'd have to go back to when I talk about this, this luck, what it really is, is it's like this string of things that happened to me or that I made happen one or the other. And none of those people are less important than the big people at the top of the pyramid, because I couldn't have gotten there without, you know, meeting the yeah, debt left train and then, you know, meeting Rory and Joel and Holden and Gary Loveman and Mark Rowan. And I just, I, you know, and then Noam Lanier and I could go through all these names and all these little pieces of my life. Um, they, you know, they, they, they are, they are the contributing factors, you know, and then the friends I had from high school, from elementary school, um, that for a part of my life kept me grounded, you know, we got distant from each other, but the groundedness, uh, from those relationships and all the new friends that I've made over time, uh, who've had super positive impacts on, uh, on my life. So yeah, there's just so, I would, I would have a long list of people that I would thank, you know, at the top of the list would be obviously my family. Um, but I'd have a long list. And what would be the title of your autobiography? Um, I have to think about it for more than a minute, but, um, you know, I, I think that for me, the title, for me, the title of my life is, I can't believe this is happening. That's the title. Like when I sit in these meetings or I meet people or, you know, I'm part owner of a hockey team or I'm, you know, meeting the prime minister of Canada or like, so I think the title is, I can't believe this is happening. It's a good and, title. And given that I haven't thought about it for more than 30 yeah. seconds. So. I love it. And so a couple of songs on the soundtrack of your life. Um, it's funny because, you know, I'm a big seventies, um, seventies fan, but I don't know if the songs are, representative of anything in my life but the songs that always come back are cat stevens songs um really meaningful songs in from from the 70s some of them are actually quite sad you know um you know, like american pie is on the soundtrack is you know it's on the soundtrack of my life even though it has nothing to do with my life it just reminds me of where i came from um, Cat Stevens reminds me of where I came from. The Doobie Brothers remind me. And then, you know, I get into a different phase of my life where Hall and & Oates and the Bee Gees remind me uh, of where I came from. And then Bruce Springsteen. Um, so, you know, I have, a, I have a soundtrack that like good friends of mine like Mitch Melnick would hate. 
<laughs> and make fun of me. But I'm not for all the songs, but, um, you know, music, music's becoming more important to me today than it was when I was growing up. Why? Because do you have more time to, to pay attention? I don't know. I think you had to buy albums and buy cassettes and it was like a big pain. And now I'm on Spotify. It's like a joke, you know, it's like Spotify knows what I like. So I don't have to to do any work. Very nice. (laughs) I'm in the algorithm. There you go. Uh, Midge Garber, you're a mensch. It was, uh, uh, so I heard from Andy. uh, So, and now from you, uh, it was, it was a treat to speak to you. Um, you know, I, 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 sometimes I meet people and and I think, man, why, how come I haven't met this person before, but I also think you meet who you're supposed to meet at the right time. And so this is how I feel about, about, um, our meeting today. So thank you again for taking the time. And I'm really, um, happy. I'm really happy to have met you. And I, I was telling, um, part of the team at Alcove that I, pro- I, I refuse 95% of the English requests and I accept 95% of the French requests, but it was important to me to do something meaningful in English because I'm much more articulate in English than I am in French. And so to have the opportunity to talk personally with you and thank you for just making it like a zoom between two friends i barely even noticed that it will be watched by anybody and maybe that's the best way to uh, to do it so thank you so much and i I really really enjoyed it la prochaine fois si tu veux on le fait en français la prochaine fois en français ça me fait plaisir on peut le faire en français okay but okay i'll call you're listening so (laughs) merci beaucoup michi à bientôt j'espère thanks à bientôt Thanks for joining us for another Alcove, your favorite nomad microconference. Join us next time for another intimate Alcove talk right here. For more information, follow us on alcovemoments.com. Merci d'avoir été des nôtres dans cette microconférence nomade Alcove. Joignez-vous à nous pour la prochaine conférence. Visitez alcovemoments.com pour tous les détails.